Uh, macro is sort of, as you would expect from the term, bigger picture, a little bit more, I think of it as a top down. So say if you were the all powerful president, prime minister, you know, how you would look at your economy and manage it from a more top down perspective. The reality is everything meets in the middle, doesn't it? But it's, it's those sorts of levers that you can manage on a, on a big aggregated scale. That's, that's essentially what, what macroeconomics is talking about. And I think the other key point here is in terms of planning um, and the to plan bit, you know, when we think about planning as a verb and to do something in the future, all these sort of micro, macroeconomic variables will have some concern about what's happening in the future. We talked about in the tutorial about uh, inflation at 7% in New Zealand, 14% in the UK. That's going to have some impact on the future and the future of an economy. So the government, the all-powerful overseeing sort of top-down concerns, will be looking at what that means for the future and future value, particularly if inflation's going at 14%, the future value of goods and services is going to be diminished over time. So you can certainly see how this relates to planning and policy and shaping markets. Um, so so that, that future value, and you can take that to all of these different macroeconomic objectives and, and the enablers of these macro, macroeconomic objectives, which will move on to things like globalization, et cetera, open economy. Um, but there's a lot of sort of staple things that all, all economies will, will concern themselves with, and we'll, we'll run through them, but not try and do it in a too much of a staccato fashion and a, you know, just try and, try, try and bring out some nice examples. So that's the sort of the, the good overview there. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we're comfortable with the difference between um, a, a, a measure and a measurement. You know, that measure could be like an objective for government, you know, what are their measures? Um, and then there's the measurement, you know, which to use an example, say if you're looking at growth and economic growth, I'm sure all nations are concerning themselves with, well, what's their economic output? Uh, and there's a lot of nice conversations around, you know, is that important, not important? In what, you know, do we shrink ourselves into utopia or do we grow ourselves into utopia? But it's also how we measure that. And you probably, you'll see the terms like GDP, gross domestic product, you know, it's everything, the gross, the domestic, everything within that nation and what it produces. So that ties nicely into all those factors of production, how we produce, you know, if we're producing lots of houses, you know, that's production, GDP and growth. So the GDP is the measurement and the measures might be the, these actual objectives that a government concerns itself with. And there's things outside government's control, isn't there? You know, we talk about you know, the, the amount of globalization, the amount of openness in the economy, those sorts of things are gonna be more enablers as I just referred to before. There's things that sort of slightly sit outside of those objectives. I would argue interest rates and exchange rates, you know, they're, they're sort of aspects that sort of play a part in those objectives, but they, they're sometimes partly independent of what's happening. Interest rates, yeah, agreed, set by governments, but they'll also be determined by money markets, you know, the supply and demand of money, uh, which essentially determines the price of money, which is essentially interest rates, you know, the, how much that, that, that money costs. You, know, you can increase the supply of money, decrease the supply of money, um, you know, through, I'm sure you're familiar with the term quantitative easing, you know, printing money that is effectively increasing the supply of money. 
um, you know, we're now probably experiencing a, a quantitative tightening um, that, that, that's reining in that, uh, that supply of money, which will, which will affect uh, the price of money and interest rates. But I think the point being, they sort of sit slightly outside of objectives, but they're all part of that macroeconomic picture. Um, so yeah, these enabler type considerations of, of globalization we'll, we'll tap into. Um, yeah, I think we can quite easily argue that you know, the, the world's become more interconnected. And there's different ways you can look at globalization. You know, is it everything's becoming more homogenized and the same, or is it a case of everything's becoming more connected and integrated? Um, you take a, a property firm, for instance, your CBREs, your Colliers, your PwC, you see them in every city, don't you, on, on the buildings? And that's that sort of, you know, globalization, you know, homogenization of, of, of particular brands, I suppose, is what I'm talking about there, but also the actual financial flows and the capital flows, and they'll certainly be engaged with, with, with property uh, in, in, in a global sense. Um, but they need to have sort of rootsy local considerations as well to, to function. So it's that, that interaction of global and local that, that's important. So we covered a lot there. That's sort of essentially that, that, that build up. And then we're into sort of first objective one. Uh, to my mind, growth um, is gonna be something that each particular economy is dealing with, as I suggested. The other little nuance to this that you might not have experienced before is the term gross value added, GVA. Um, so through the reading and your understanding of this, you'll sort of realize that, well, GVA is essentially taking out tax and, and taking out the fiscal bit, the tax and spend stuff. Um, so say if you were building a house, producing a house, that would sort of contribute to GDP. Um, but obviously there's gonna be sort of some taxation considerations along the way, taxation on the, the materials. And, and if you sell that final product, if that house is sold on the market by a big developer and you strip away those tax and spend, you start to get down to the, the, the raw, gross value added, you know, what's being added to those real raw materials that are being put forward. And also the other components, so as well as the sort of stripping out the fiscal stuff, um, there's, there's a way that you can um, look at a smaller spacious scale. So you could look at like an urban scale, a city scale, at the gross value added in a small, you know, in a small scale, because GDP is generally the national consideration, all of New Zealand. But with the GVA, you can maybe look at what Auckland's producing because you're able to strip out those national fiscal considerations. So that's the, the way I would sort of explain how that GVA, and it's better for analysis and understanding how different cities function. New Zealand isn't just Auckland, it's not just Wellington, it's not just Christchurch, you know, there's those individual components and they grow at different speeds and different rates and interact with each other. So, you know, getting down to a, a finer grain detail is often more helpful for managing an economy, you know, so that's where that GVA can, can, be, can be quite helpful. And there's some just sort of uh, explanation here as well in terms of that, that, that differential. Uh, in Europe, um, we have um, the interestingly uh, interesting acronym of NUTS, the Nomenclature of Units, Territorial Statistics. So when you do the big European analysis, you would look at, at GVAs within those, those particular uh, regional considerations uh, when we apply a GVA approach. So it is, you know, this is used in, in, in practice uh, as well. So, so that's GDP growth. I think um, 
you can remember to, I think another key point is remember to tie all these objectives together. People will talk about protection of the environment, which is further down the list here, um, and how that might be in sort of competition, running at odds, running against, you know, growth. And people would argue, well, we don't need economic growth. You know, we need a different, um, you know, we need to be focusing our energy on other macroeconomic objectives like protection of the environment. And uh, we're better taxing carbon at a greater rate, you know, whatever the cost is to um, current growth because future growth is being stifled, you know, uh, with the effects of climate change. So hopefully you can see how those different particular macroeconomic objectives um, will might be running at odds with each other, in conflict with each other. Um, and then that that spins off into nicer arguments about, well, what about green growth? You know, that's the sort of the place where a lot of people are now, you know, um, more sustainable growth, um, which is, as when we talk about sustainability, you might sort of muddy the waters because it's, you know, sustainability as a concept of time or sustainability as a concept of natural resources. And I think that's why protection of the environment puts that in a nice, clean, uh, if you pardon the pun, you know, way of looking at um, dealing with that particular issue. Um, so it's that inter interaction. So number two here, um, so I skipped through to um, thinking about uh, protection of the environment, um, just to demonstrate this interaction. And, and another interaction of these macro objectives is stable prices. So stable prices, you know, an, an economy. So say if you're all that all powerful prime minister, uh, president, you would want to make sure that prices aren't dramatically falling away and not dramatically increasing at an escalating rate and at a rate that, that's unmanageable. You know, and um, we talked about in the tutorial, it's seeing the textbooks and in, in practice, it usually runs at about 2%, between 1% and 3%, and people aren't pressing the alarm, be alarm bells. Um, so stable prices, inflation. Um, and so that's the, the objective, the measure, the measurement of this. I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, terms, acronyms, um, CPI, Consumer Price Index. You've also got things like RPI, Retail Price Index. You have things like HPIs, House Price Index. So when you get away from this conversation of basket of goods, um, essentially it's all about how things go up in price. But the clever thing about how CPI, RPI work is it's this basket of goods. It's a combination of food, energy, maybe some rent in there if we're talking about property. Um, and how that's going up will, and, and the percentage of rate of how that's going up over a year is going to have an impact on people's general wealth and ability to buy things. You know, if a loaf of bread and a combination of goods are increasing, it means that your wage, so if you're earning 10 grand a year, that effectively you can buy less with your 10 grand each year if inflation's going up. And if it's going up, at a, you know, ideally your, your wages would be going up at 2% just as um, uh, RPI, CPI be going up at 2%. So yeah, people wouldn't be having to pull any other levers. So that's sort of essentially how it works. And I think that example of, of you know, particularly New Zealand, how rent sits in the, the CPI basket, mortgage payments don't, interestingly. Some new, for new builds, some of that fits into that basket. But that spread sort of tends to um, show how things are running in the property market. 
And I think what we've seen in New Zealand in terms of the CPI rising, we do see rent playing a part in that. I think for those that run the numbers, you can see that rents are generally increasing. So aside from that, when concerns of when we talk about interest rates and payments on mortgages, if interest rates are going up, you're going to be paying more on a mortgage for people who are you know, borrowing money to, to own a house or rent out a house. Um, that's separate and doesn't sit in that CPI. So I think you need to do the analysis in, in two separate silos, you know, looking how, how the property market's running and HPI, house price indexes are running as slightly different to, to CPI and rents. So that's sort of a nice um, uh, property consideration there. More conversation there about, about the wages. That tends to be the sort of the, the in, because you can see it is in terms of how it's affecting your own individual pocket. Um, but you got to remember that you know there's people in the market, um, there's this producers, there's suppliers, you know, house builders, and they're going to be concerning themselves with inflation. You know, material costs are becoming more expensive as as their value is being eroded because of because of inflation. So that's, um, that's, that's an important application there. Some of these points are, you know, just just discussed really. I mean, I suppose the third point there: um, price rises, house costs. You know, that loan mortgage consideration that I just talked through. And it's that, I suppose it's, you know, as applied to property markets and rental markets, it's be interesting to see how you know, different people in different sectors will, will be affected more depending on um, how much people rent and how much people own within a particular economy. You know, New Zealand's infamously as you know, fragmented mum and dad type investor market. So there's lots of people who will be keeping a keen eye on interest rates. You know, if they've got a, a second property, i.e. they become investors, if they've got a second property, they're going to be very much interested in inflation, um, in house price inflation, mortgage rate considerations as different to um, those rental considerations. So, so the, the, the makeup and the, and the tenure differentials in the market um, is going to be uh, you know, particularly pertinent there with respect to inflation. Um, conversation there in that slide, we've just sort of teed up really, it's this, this what people work towards, this 2%, 1% either side uh, consideration. Most um, sort of um, modern economies, as Flynn talked about, those sort of mixed economies, it's part government command and control, part actual free market. Um, the free market being the, the money markets, I guess, and we can talk about the globalization of those money markets further along. Um, but it's those money markets which will partly determine the pressure to increase and decrease um, the interest rate, the price of money, as you see, the supply of money increasing. But it falls on the, you know, the, the committee of the time to make that decision of increasing. And I suppose, as we see in the news, it's um, going up half a half a percent, you know, as, as, as things change over time. Um, so it's sort of a, a combination of, of market and, and shaping that, um, that we've discussed. I think just while it's, if we've got scan down to, I think it's 0.5, I think this interest rate conversation by proxy to um, prices, um, Interest rates are interesting, aren't they? Because you can, so say if we start to see interest rates go from say 1% to 10%, that's probably gonna have some sort of impact on a, the growth of, of the property market and what that contributes to GDP, for instance. Uh, higher interest rates, money's more expensive. 
people will probably not be able to service their mortgage. So hence, there's going to be people exiting the market and or not buying into the market as much and hence there'll be a, a dampening of, of, of the property market more broadly so i think that's just one way in which we can see you know, interest interest rates having having an impact um, you know the the affordability question that, that we often are exposed to um you, know, you could argue that well if interest rates grow are going up more um that means mortgages are becoming more expensive people leaving the market a dampening of the market on the whole that could potentially make things more affordable if prices are falling. And we're sort of seeing that in the, the New Zealand market over the last six months or so. Uh, so, so it can work two ways, really. You know, it's more unaffordable to service your mortgage, but it might dampen the market to make the market more affordable for first-time buyers, et cetera. So, so there's, it's, it's an interesting way in which these can all interact, these, these particular objectives. Um, and interest rates being sort of a tools slightly outside or an instrument that's slightly outside of uh, uh, the, the core objectives that, that we're looking at here. Start to introduce this idea of quantitative easing, the printing of money, the supply and demand of money. Remember those X diagrams, you can quite easily think through, well, if you restrict the supply of money, um, you're going to see um, the price going up, you know, supply starts to being restricted. Um, and, and the price of money going up, or if you can increase the supply of money, you'll start to see interest rates going down. And that's essentially what this whole you know, post-GFC global financial crisis has been about, is trying to keep interest rates down, because if we keep interest rates down, that means people will invest because money's cheaper. And if money's cheaper and people invest, the economy can grow, because the danger signals are we don't want growth to start to go in negative, because if growth is negative, what's that referred to? Recession, you know, people start getting scared in an in a economic-y sort of sense. So hopefully that, that's sort of an, another layering here of this supply of money, interest rates impacting on uh, growth, the economy, uh, as applied to property. Um, yeah, so this, it's all part of this bond money, you know, printing money by writing an IOU, which is what bonds are. So people talk about bonds, they're basically this IOU consideration. So that's a nice sort of um, opener. So we've covered growth, covered stable prices, started to feed into interest rate considerations in that sort of inflation. Employment's a nice easy one. Um, and we, in the tutorial, we started to uh, work through how um, people being employed in the property sector is a nice in here, isn't it? So it's worth noting down, you know, in terms of employment, you probably think of yourself as a, an employee. So I'm sure we've all had various jobs, whether it's casual or, or otherwise. Um, and those employment considerations are going to be more pertinent to the bigger economy. Remember, if you're the all-powerful prime minister president of who's employed and in what particular sectors, Different countries will have different focus. I mean, quite clearly, New Zealand property is, is a very large sector. So this is going to be quite interesting in terms of how it plays out, in terms of what's being promoted, et cetera. Um, so uh, full employment is, is an objective of government. Obviously, there's lots of little nuances and ifs and buts. Well, what about those that are not of working age? What about those that are disabled, uh, those that are, uh, can't work? You know, uh, need some various, have got various needs. 
uh, based consideration. So there's there's lots of sort of uh, nuances to this. Um, yeah, people who are temporary workers, you know, full time, casual, all those sorts of considerations. Um, and you know, from a uh, you know, we can look at macro picture of, of um, employment. Uh, use the example there of manufacturing shifts and, and changes from you know, non-skilled workers to more highly skilled workers, particularly as over you know, it's become in an accelerated sense that um, people working in, in higher skill jobs are going to get um, a higher higher wage. Um, you know, the, hence the, the big push for people in what's referred to as the quaternary sector, you know, this sort of managing information, knowledge, etc. You know, the, the reason why you're in university, I guess, is to be in that category and be a knowledge worker and um, be able to contribute high added value. You know, it goes back to that idea of value uh, and contribution in that way. Yeah, knowledge is yeah, knowledge is power. I'm sure all the political scientists will be into that sort of a Foucault type sort of conversation. Um, but also, knowledge is money, and knowledge is value, and lot <laughs> knowledge has has wealth attached to it. So, um, yeah, that employment within the sector is important. So, you know, the the, the training of being a, a property professional, for instance, um, playing a part in, in in that sector of employment. <clears throat> and there's different ways in which we met, you know, the measurements of this, you have claimant count, so you can look at who's claiming unemployment benefit or income support or housing benefit, all those, uh, not necessarily housing benefit, but yeah, income support, I guess, um, or if job seekers allowance, it's various different systems around the world, um, things like, they might all be amalgamated into one particular pot, like, um, um, uh, Things like universal credit is where I was going with that in the UK. Um, so there's there's ways in which they, this this can you know the bean counters in the government can start to see well how are these numbers tracking along and you can look at um, different figures. So claimant uh, unemployment claimant counts being being two particular um, different variants of, of looking at unemployment benefit ways of uh, measuring uh, employment considerations or the yeah unemployment rates. Different scales as well being being a consideration there as the, as the final point. Different administrative boundaries, uh, because resources will have to be directed, you know, from a sort of a, a redistribution of income and wealth consideration. Certain parts of the economy that are struggling, if it's a former industrial area or city uh, where there's a high claimant count, there's going to have to be some sort of redistribution of income and wealth to help support those workers uh, reskill. Uh, deal with any crime issues as people are sort of struggling, um, hospitals, health, mental health issues that that um, come off the back of those those industri industrial um, restructuring um, frames that that are having to be uh, dealt with in, in particular spatial locations. So so that's sort of a nice um, consideration to other macro um, redistribution of income and wealth as tied to employment. But on the whole, government's going to want. A nice, happy, healthy workforce. Um, hence, it's it's concern over uh, managing that into the future. Uh, balance of payments. I think I think I argued in the tutorial. It's a bit more tricky for for property. You know, properties tends to be you know terra firma, fixed to the earth. You know, the, the trading of, of buildings is obviously you're not going to put them on a boat, but the materials that are attached to them are important. You know, the steel, uh, jib, etc. And as we've alluded to, New Zealand as a case, 
been a you know an, an importing exporting nation uh, being a, a rock in the middle of the pacific it, it plays a part of course um so the balance of payments but there are sort of that's the current balance which is essentially the sort of the, the goods and services that are traded between different nations uh, but we've also got the finance that, that's that moves between nations as well that's um you know considered in the capital account um uh, so that's so that's essentially you know where you can see those money flows um uh, playing a part in in what the balance of payments is doing and a government you're gonna you're gonna be wanting to you know, export more than you import but not running at too high a level because that's going to have other impacts on the economy so again similar to stable prices you know you don't want prices going through the roof you don't want them dropping away it's sort of having that sort of nice steady steady growth and arguably that'd be the same for the balance of payments because it's good the, the impact is essentially going to feed through um, to uh, exchange rates because people are going to want more of your own currency, depending on whether you're exporting or importing more. If everyone wants New Zealand goods, they're going to want New Zealand dollars. And that has an impact on the money markets, you know, so that's that's where that uh, uh, can, can feed through. Essentially, the point I've just raised there. I would just refer to the uh, current account, capital account, and official financing. So there's, there's a debt element that countries have as well um, that's going to be playing a part on whether it's a positive or a negative balance of payments. And then protecting the environment. I suppose the cynics would say, well, what's this got to do with economics? Um, but certainly economics in, in a broader sense can uh, play a part in how resources are distributed and if we're saying natural resources one of the key components remember the sort of the, the first stuff we talked about uh, you can you can incentivize and you can channel environmental resources natural resources through tax and spend carbon tax for instance you know back in the industrial sort of time frame we'd concern ourselves with you know polluting riverways if you know if particular factories or by a river and it's how you clean that up how you might tax that particular uh, polluter polluter pays principle but now i suppose we're you know the, the attention is all on release of carbon and you know economists can can try and manage that um i use that example of you know balancing out economic growth with protection of the environment and so yeah so i think there is there is a way in which um uh, economists can can play a part in in dealing with climate change um and also yeah climate change levy for instance yeah that's quite clearly a, an example that can be placed and you know in the ways in which buildings uh tax for light heat all those things those contributions to to the environment can be can be shaped in some way um yeah to a move towards sort of net zero um and it goes back to that that bigger fundamentals of you know what does property do in terms of contribution to uh, climate change and what is climate change doing contributing to buildings in terms of value if it's coastal areas etc that, that that might erode some of the uh, the value of particular properties or, or the the amount that's going to have to be paid for flood protection whether that's rivers or, or whether that's seas um, so so there's, there's a certainly a way in which um, economics can, can play a part in this and you know transport sort of channeling of, of finances use that sort of congestion charge 
consideration there. You know, a lot of it, transport uh, can play a big part and transport economics can play a big part in, 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 in the green consideration in terms of protection of the environment objective of government, which we, you know, it's pretty much mainstream now, I would argue. You know, you look at Auckland and the, you know, the, uh, the transport plan, the city link sort of plan there, that's, that's, you know, it's got an environmental agenda as well as just dealing with the, uh, the lost man hours and the frustrations and getting cars off the road. It's, um, it's, it's all part of this uh, wider sort of environmental strategy as well. I think most of the um, most of the points have been raised. Um, water, I, mean, I just sort of talked about carbon pollution, consumption of water, arguably going to be the next major war. Maybe that's something to uh, for the futurists to consider. Um, you know, in terms of fresh water, it's not just a you know. A developing nation consideration you know, is going to be more consideration in terms of getting fresh water given the effects of climate change and and how um, uh, sources of water are changing I think is it's going to be interesting I'm always fascinated by the amount of um, exporting of water you know, particularly New Zealand China it's always hits the news doesn't it uh, so that's something that that's going to play a part in in um, protection of the environment but how that feeds through to those other macroeconomic objectives you know if there's a um yeah there's a big pressure for growth through export of particular natural resources timber water let's just use this this there's a lot at play here in terms of um yeah there's the politics behind this but there's the economics of it as well that, that we're trying to sort of delve into here so there's more more examples there. I suppose it's the CO2 release it's, uh congestion loss of green space that's talked about there um there's the the water consumption you know clean drinking water potable water um and and sort of the wider ecological footprint um, in, in how you can measure this sort of stuff um you can measure it maybe in terms of um how much you tax carbon you know that's very clear uh, econometric and you know, and and measured and valued uh, approach to things and um, other ways is you know, ecological footprint type considerations um, that, that we can put forward uh, at different scales. You know, there's the, the individually how we can reduce consumption, but collectively and, and, and the ability for people, because it's you know it's, it's a more um, sociological you know, group consideration that's needed in terms of protection of the environment. It will need this macroeconomic force to try and guide it. Um, that's that's the argument. Um, so redistribution of income and wealth is um, clearly one that uh, depends on the government of the day to how much they believe this is needed. Um, there's, the, there's the bigger argument that if there's more equality, um, there's a greater ability for more growth. You know, if you've got 1%, the 1%, as it's referred to, richest people, uh, that's going to be less productive if you had um, the 50%, you know, if there was an equal distribution of income and wealth, that would mean that the whole pie could grow um, at a greater rate. So there's a sort of an economic argument for equality, not just a, a moral sort of ethical consideration. There's, there's a way in which if there's this greater sharing and redistribution of income and wealth, the whole, the whole, um, the whole pie can grow. So that's a sort of um, yeah, an interesting sort of into uh, redistribution of income and wealth. Obviously, 
just like protection of the environment, you know, redistribution is quite an emotive political, uh, politically loaded aspect and people on the left, people on the right, people in the middle, people on the up and the, and the down are going to take this in different ways. Um, but ways in which you can actually do it and, and measure doing it is through this fiscal means. It's probably one of the easiest ways as a government, you have some good, heavy handed ways in which you can extract money from people uh, of your things, of your, uh, of your property, of your place. You have a police that can support you to extract those money. You know, and this has been over centuries, the way in which you, know, uh, you can only, um, it's easy to introduce a tax, but the ability to, to do it is, uh, depends on the, the particular apparatus of, of a government. Um, but from an economic point of view, you can actually measure it as well of how much tax you take off different strata of society and of people of different socioeconomic standing. You know, if people earn more, you can tax more. If they earn less, you can tax less. Those sorts of different models. Um, but that's the way in which we can start to redistribute, for instance. And I've started to, to sort of lean into that conversation about you know, um, uniform taxes, progressive taxes, or more regressive taxes uh, that we'll talk about in the fiscal section. I think the key point here is that one easy way to redistribute income and wealth is through a fiscal measure, i.e. tax people and spend on other people. <laughs> and it's the government that, that is the controlling force there, obviously. Um, a lot of um, governments and researchers that support governments and researchers that do it out of the love of researching would use these things called Gini coefficients. Uh, those that have studied economics before this is fairly staple. Uh, but hopefully you can see through this diagram you know, how we can look at um, cumulative share of people. So going up to 100%, so that's everyone is 100% and all the way down to 1%, which will be the 1% of the population. They might actually own a cumulative share of income and wealth, I've added there as well, from lowest to the highest. So you can have 100% of the people own 100% of the wealth, or the other way, you can have no one owns nothing in terms of income and wealth. So as, um, and if that was completely equal, you'd have a point halfway where a cumulative share of half of the people would cumulatively share half of the income and wealth. Yeah, that would be a way in which we'd sort of pick out that, that line there for, of 45 degrees. Um, and, and right in the sweet spot would be that 50% that I just talked about. Um, so that would be the sort of inequality. But we have this Lorenz curve. And this sort of tends to bulge is probably the best way to describe it. This bulging towards yeah, a greater cum cumulative share of the people um, having less of a cumulative share of income and wealth. So when I talk about the 1%, you know, these 1% super rich elite type people, you know, if you see more of a bulge, you're going to be seeing more of that cumulative share um, uh, of, of, of um, income and wealth. So there's, I think there's, a, there's an interesting sort of way in which you can look at how, how much we're moving away from this line of equality. Uh, in terms of that cumulative share, that's the that's the sort of the maths behind it. You know, how things add up on on each other, and and that cumulative share of income and wealth. So 
that's sort of how you can start to overlay some of the science on there and some of the numbers to see how things are distributed in, in different societies will have different bulges depending on you know how how much they um um essentially redistribute i mean it could look like that but they don't redistribute but it would show in a good indication of how much you know as a snapshot how that is it might change over time but as a snapshot how that that's interrelated so that's a good way of starting to, to measure out those things as i promised we'll, we'll keep this going till nine o'clock then we'll take a break um we're on to exchange rates which sort of um sits slightly outside the these measures so we've, we've covered those six um core objectives by government and the ways that all measures and the way that we measure them um uh, and we start to look there in terms of how we measure redistribution of income and wealth largely fiscal uh and diagrammatically explored in terms of cumulative income and wealth matched against cumulative share of that income and wealth, a cumulative share of the population. Uh, just as we looked at um, employment as a measure and looking at the claimant count to, as a form of measurement of that. So now we're onto sort of areas outside of those, those objectives. Exchange rates being a, um, a key aspect of, of how um, property, goods, uh, money is traded between nations um, and what the, the rate of, of exchange is going to be to trade those goods and services. Going back to first principles of economics about how we use money as a, as a, as a trading thing, <laughs> you know, rather than shells and beads, we use natural sort of well, it was paper cash was sort of pretty much a paperless society, but we're, we're trading zeros and ones from a computer screen now uh, between, uh, and, and that's going to have to be attached to a rate. And those rates change, you know, depending on how people want that money to buy the goods, you know. So it's sometimes we just think of exchange rates of just getting money to go on holiday, but there's a very real thing that's attached to what people are buying and selling between nations. Um, and the property example, we use that example of steel, for instance. And here we've got um, um, uh, some mathematics in terms of uh, how currency rates are traded. So we can look at a particular currency and looking at the supply and demand for that money. Done a lot of this teeing up in the early parts of the, of the lecture, but this is a, you know, back to those old school X diagrams. Um, Flynn quite rightly said were part of many films over the ages during the 80s. It'd be Ferris Bueller, I guess, um, who would talk about voodoo economics. Anyone, anyone. Um, so here, that example I used of sort of um, increasing the supply of money, you know, that shift there is reducing the price of that particular money. You know, those new say so this is New Zealand dollars. We're seeing New Zealand dollars fall by the increase in the supply of money, and a nice easy visualization of what that is is, is through the printing of money. Um, and then we have a demand for money as well. Remember, you know, people uh, if they want to invest in, in New Zealand products and houses, buildings. Uh, infrastructure, all those sorts of things, there's going to be a demand for currency to, to do that as well as the supply of the money that's available. So that's markets in action, determining the price of a particular currency. And these currencies are all um, obviously relative to other currencies, you know, the New Zealand dollar relative to 
the US dollar, you know, a lot of currency or the majority of currencies are all pegged against the US dollar now rather than gold. Interesting conversations as an aside about well, what other currencies, you know, why is it the US dollar, you know, arguments that other big, um, uh, in big nations grouping together and pegging it against their currencies, you know, your Brazil, um, um, well, what would have been BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, China, maybe not so much the, the Russia component, um, but you know what's what's stopping um, you know, a complete change in the economic system to peg it against other currencies. It's probably a sidebar there, but it's just to get you thinking about how this is all relative. Um, and the only way we're stopping that relativity in, in the big, big money markets is pegging things against the US dollar. So there's sort of an anchor there. <clears throat> and then we'll run through some maths. I mean, you can do that in your own time, just working through how if you were, um, how interest rates are fluctuating, what that value of that currency is worth. The pictorial diagram says it all really in terms of how prices increase or decrease. Um, but I think the important bit uh, for us is um, what this would, would do to property. Um, and I think uh, here we could make that argument that Say if the New Zealand dollar was really strong, um, and in terms of its 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 value, uh, the properties with which those that value is attached to are also going to be increased in value. So the thought process there being, well, you've got strong New Zealand dollar, that means that the actual physical assets that New Zealand owns, New Zealand Inc. owns are also increasing in value. But if we see a uh, falling away in the value of the New Zealand dollar, the price of those, uh, the, or the value, more importantly, of those particular buildings are gonna be falling as well. So uh, sort of currency uh, and the strength of the currency is gonna be pretty important to the valuation of properties. Um, but there's, a, there's that caveat, and we've talked about this in the, in the tutorial, the caveat being that, well, it sounds great that you know you've got a strong currency you got that means all your assets are, are looking strong but relatively speaking and this is the, the complexity when you start talking relatively speaking people might want to invest in property elsewhere because it's cheaper you know it's of lower value so why why are we housing all our workers in new zealand in these very expensive uh, buildings where we can go to uh, another nation and house them there uh, in in and hence, there's that sort of relative consideration, and thus, you know, a, a market, you know, the free marketeers would say, well, this would all balance out over the longer term. Obviously, there's lots of nuances underneath that in terms of infrastructure, et cetera. Um, so that's sort of um, a way in which we can attach that um, value of currency uh, to, to particular property and, and relative concerns of, of other, other nations. <clears throat> 